distinct pleasure of having two very um, impressive scientists join us from the DRI in Miami. Um, Dr. Chris Frager and Dr. Allison Bayer are joining us. And I'm just going to give a short little bio about the both of them. Dr. Frager, I will start with you. Uh, he's focused on, the opti on optimizing islet stem cell encapsulation to restore normal glucose levels without the need for immunosuppression sort of like what everyone is hoping to achieve um, in this field, really. Uh, and additionally, he uh, everyone's working very hard uh, by that. I mean, that people are working really hard towards that end. And additionally, he continues to work on improving oxygenation to encapsulated cells and applying these technologies to the growth and maintenance of mesenchymal uh, stem cells or MSCs, islets immune cells. The nano emulsion technologies developed in Dr. Fraker's labs were also licensed for development as injectable anesthetics, repurposing and inhalation and anesthetics into the nano emulsions, which is very cool. And more recently, he's begun uh, work on the role of the innate immune system, natural killer cells or NK cells in T1D, and the importance of these cells in the viral hypothesis or hypotheses surrounding diabetes development. He's also examining the importance of innate immune function in autoimmune pathologies and the existence of precursor cells in MSCs. And he's um, uh, involved in projects in examining a metabolic a potential metabolic factor in both T1 and T2 diabetes, uh, which is folic acid. As reported in the Journal of Immunology, Dr. Allison Bayer's team established an important function for IL-7R, uh, or otherwise known as the IL-7 receptor for the de development of natural um, Tregs or T-regulatory cells. This will be an important line of future investigation as polymorphism in the IL-7 uh, seven RA gene like, that likely leads to reduced IL-7R signaling is an autoimmune susceptibility gene for both uh, multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes. And Dr. Bayer's research focuses on understanding the basic immunobiology of Tregs and applying that knowledge to, for future uh, clinical translation applications. She hopes her work is going to lead to the design of novel therapies for non-toxic approaches to toler um, to tolerance induction with the ultimate goal of achieving both self-tolerance and transplantation tolerance for the treatment of T1D patients. Welcome um, both uh, Chris and Allison. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to speak with us. Uh, thanks very much thank, for thank having you, Monica. me. Yeah. Okay, do you want to dive in here? The title of this uh, presentation, The Role of NK Cells in the Context of Type 1 Diabetes, is it the beginning of the end? And as I said to you both earlier, I really hope so. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> but um, yeah, let's talk about the work. Okay, um, I'm going to start off just with a little personal story and sort of uh, parlay into Allison's real research work. I am by no means an immunologist. Uh, I'm a bioengineer by training. But I'm also a T1D patient for 36 years. And uh, in 2009, I happened to get a flu vaccine, which sent my immune system spiraling, for lack of a better word. Mm. Um, I reactivated about seven viruses wow. and was basically stumbling around. I got Guillain-Barre syndrome and was basically stumbling around looking for answers to what was going on. I had uh, horrible chronic fatigue, which is now being called long COVID, even though it's existed for over 50 years. Um, and I finally found a physician here at UM who treated patients in this uh, chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction. She's one of the world's leading experts. Her name is Nancy Klimas mm -hmm. and uh, my doctor, Irma Ray, who works with her. And they basically told me that a lot of these illnesses that are caused by viruses um, are problems in the immune system of patients. Basically, the 
early immune system or the innate immune system and primarily NK cells, the natural killer cells, whose job it is to deal with viruses when they first come in along with a couple other cell types. They're the ones that are responsible for getting the whole immune cascade started. And she said that all of her patients typically, and interestingly, when I started to research and looked at autoimmunity and other conditions, it seemed very similar. All of them tend to have defective NK cells. They don't function properly. They function in a way that's actually immunosuppressive, for lack of a better term. They shut down other immune responses. Hmm. And it, it seems that these viruses, which I thought, you know, you get a viral infection and you clear it. No, that's not the case. They live in patients for years and years, their entire lifespan. They can be passed on to their children, right? So you have these viruses living in you. Um, these are viruses of the herpes family, like Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, HHV6. These are viruses of the Coxsackie family, B4, B6. These are viruses of many different families. And many of these viruses you've heard in the context of autoimmunity, because there have been reports for over 20, 30 years of people seeing these viruses tied somehow to people with autoimmune conditions. And that sort of led me to find Allison and ask her, you know, we had been colleagues and I'm like, look, I really want to figure this stuff out. I really think this is, is something to do with diabetes and, and with other autoimmunity and, and what can we do to start studying this? And so of course, being the great collaborator and, and generous colleague that she is, she decided to look at my crazy ideas and, and try to figure out some of this stuff. So that just sort of moves forward into some of what I was talking about. So here are some recent papers. Most importantly, uh, this one at the top left, which was a recent paper basically describing in patients that they did a study with uh, military blood samples. And they found that people that at some point had EBV in, and had reactivated for EBV were 20-fold more likely to develop MS following long-term study. So this was really considered, and this was published in Science. I think it's the left one. I can't see. But anyways, this was one yes. of the definitive papers that is establishing that, you know, these viruses are tied to autoimmunity. And more and more, this is growing as techniques are getting better to detect the viruses and samples that could only be measured in one lab now with better techniques. They can be confirmed in other labs. And this is part of the, you know, the great program of UF and UM and other centers, the NPOD, uh, where they're taking pancreatic donors that had type 1 diabetes and controls as well. And they're comparing and they're seeing these viral presence the viral presence in different uh, pancreatic samples, which is really intriguing. And they're finally able to confirm it. Um, so NK cells, you know, they, they weren't really, most of the research in immune cells in diabetes, in fact, like 95 to 99% of it has been done on T cells and particularly CD8 positive cytotoxic lymphocytes or T cells, which are the very downstream and effectors of the response. And one of the interesting roles of NK cells in the body, if you have, for example, an influenza infection, is to control the response of the CD8s to make sure that it doesn't get out of control, right? So there are papers published showing that when people that have conditions like diabetes and their NK cells are not very strong, they get the flu, those CD8s go crazy and they cause too much inflammation, too much tissue destruction, and you get a very severe reaction to the flu. Well, thinking in the context of type 1 diabetes, our hypothesis was, yeah, that makes sense because those are the cells that destroy the pancreas. And if they're not being controlled by the NK cells and there's some missing communication from the early immune system, that basically the prehistoric immune system, right, that 
further developed when viruses were able to evade it. Um, it makes sense that they would destroy the pancreas and the NK cells. If they're not working right, you're going to get some destruction. So, so that was, so, yeah. I mean, so Chris, it yeah. looks like from these papers that the, the, uh, this hypothesis has been around for a while, kind of oh, floating sure. around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but undefined, right? Like, so the technology yes. of, I mean, for sure, viral hypothesis has been there forever. We just kind of tried to tie some pieces together and see if right. it made sense. And we threw it out there because we want people to pick it up. Yeah, no, I, I I think it's so fascinating. Like there's been, you can see there's a buzz around the, the NK cells and what is their role in, um, you know, the initiation of T1D. And um, I think it's, I think it's really interesting how you kind of started to put these together. And only because well, I, I got that shot, right? Like, I mean, yeah. the, the thing that's exciting to me too is, is COVID is pushing some of that out there too, right? Because yeah. we've had this surge of diabetes and of this long COVID. So now, like in some states, 41% of the population is claiming they have long COVID, right? And this is something that was basically ignored for years. It was a very, the, the way it was described was very demeaning. It was called housewives disease or hysteria, right? Because the people that primarily got it were women in, in large disparity, the same with autoimmunity. And the reason is, is if you think about it, every month from the age of menstruation to, men, uh, to menopause, they basically are immunosuppressed. Mm -hmm. waiting for implantation and that allows viruses to reactivate and to do all these things so that was part of our hypothesis as well this is why it so disproportionately affects women we believe and in the case of diabetes where it's equal there is a specific reason for that as well that we know now there's a marker on the beta cells that basically gives immuno privilege to that cell for viral infection I just also want to add, yeah, I just want to add that we're always talking about the hyperexpression of MHC class one, um, and Pod has confirmed this, it's been discussed, but we talk a lot about the CD8 cells, but the other immune cell that really uses and hones in on MHC class one is NK cells. So to kind of ignore this very innate um, cell population that is also being led um, to figure out, do I react? Do I not react? Is tied to MHC class one expression. So I think as a field, we definitely need to think about um, the role of NK cells and how it actually is contributing um, to the disease in the patients themselves, but also, you know, how do we use these populations to really understand the pathology? So that's kind of where like Chris and I, you know, started with this project. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, and Allison was, I mean, like, it, it, it was great because even my physician was excited about it because she sees this potential too. So it, it gave us two sort of hypotheses in the sense of there's one or two things we think are happening to NK is they're either, you know, they're just constantly exhausted, which is she can describe in better detail because there's a constant source of inflammation. There's a constant viral presence that they're detecting through cycles of reactivation and then going back into a latent state. And that just wears them out over time. And that's what my doctor always says when she looks at my NK cell profile, my viral profile, she'll be like, yeah, you're suffering from really exhausted NKs. Their, their signaling molecules are all disproportionate and out of whack. So these things called cytokines that they use to communicate with other cells are completely off, right? And they're just they're just worn out. And then they're also being used by the viruses. They're going through these cycles of destruction that we ended up seeing in the patients where they become more suppressive and the viruses sort of hijack that mechanism to prevent being detected, right? This, and so then- Yeah, this, this whole model fits, you know, very nicely with the whole like 
um, you know, one hit and then uh, remission, you know, one hit presentation of an autoantibody remission, mm -hmm. so-called remission and second hit, you know, another anti autoantibody, you know, a potential remission and then finally diagnosis. But, um, you know, I wondered, have there been any larger scale trials that are mapping the NK cells of patients as they are in the prodrome? I don't, yeah, that's the, that's the overlooked cell, right? I mean, that's what I'm, I think now people are starting to pay attention to stuff. I mean, even the samples that I had were very, it was a very small number. I mean, we were able to show in that small population with age and sex matching that there was some significant difference to controls, but the amount you would need to do and, and should have been done, right? They should have looked at, but I mean, a lot of it is the technology too, right? They didn't have the staining for the antibody or the antigens on NK cells that they do now, right? So yeah. now they- so or the seek scope or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many subpopulations defined now as well that have newly discovered roles. I mean, in the last 20 years, the advancements made in that are amazing. And that's why I think it's going to get better. And even the technology around looking at those cells is getting better too. Like the flow cytometry techniques, the machines, everything. I think there's going to be a lot of discovery in the next 10 to 15 years. How, um, um, how difficult, to, excuse me, how difficult yeah, is it to isolate sort of NK cells from a patient's um, blood? Is it, are they very um, easy to get a, a bunch of them to be able to study or are they very rare? Yeah, it was, it's fairly easy to get the cells. The, the hard part is keeping them, you know, like I would run my samples fresh. So I would get, I had the benefit of the clinic downstairs where we would get patient samples and I would, and then I would, uh, bleed every person here that didn't have diabetes that were my colleagues and such as my controls and other controls. And then you could compare, and then you could even buy whole blood from a blood bank, things like that. And if it's fresh, it's pretty easy. They do degrade fairly rapidly, at least in my experience and what my doctor had said. So I don't know if there's uh, literature out there now that says they found better ways to keep them viable for longer. But uh, so now we're getting into the area. I'll let Allison talk about some of her work where she was looking at uh, the, the the NK cells in mice, both in the controls and in the autoimmune population, some really interesting stuff. So sounds great. Thanks, Chris. So, yeah, I mean, typically when we think of human natural killer cells, we think of two subsites. So sometimes they come in different flavors. People kind of refer to them with different names. You know, you have the CD56 brights which some people will call NK regulatory cells because they make copious amounts of cytokines and they can kill, but they're not as proficient as, as the um, NK effector cells. And we kind of know some of the expression patterns um, in these 56 brights. So we have, you know, they express the trimeric IL-2 receptor. They express C-kit, which is supposed to be, you know, you think of more in a more immature um, phenotype they have L-selectin, CCR7, and of course, then they have the related, you know, inhibitory and uh, activating receptors on the surface. And then, but most people, when you talk about natural killer cells, they think about the NK effector population, which is the CD56 DIMMs. These are the killers. These are the ones that are doing the destruction. They have lots of granules in their cytoplasm and they're full of killing molecules. They're very good with natural cytotoxicity as well as other forms of killing. And they do make cytokines, but not to the same extent that these NK regs or 56 brights. Typically, when we think about this, most people think about 
NK effector cells, but the 56 bright cells are also very important. These are what regulate the adaptive response through their cytokine secretion. And we also know that these NK reg cells, though they're not very good killers, when they become killers, they're very good at killing effector CD8 cells. There's more data coming out about that. Um, so it's definitely where we need to think, be thinking about subsets. Yeah, so what Chris and I first started doing is, as you mentioned in the beginning, I'm really a T-regulatory cell lab. Um, so when we kind of delved into how are we going to look at the phenotype of these NK subsets, and we want to look at control subjects, and we had um, relatively easy access to blood samples from longstanding type 1 patients. So we developed this strategy using flow cytometry where we could identify the NK cells and very clearly identify these 56 bright CD16 negative compared to the CD56 dim CD16. And you can see here on the flow cytometry plot, we kind of back colored those. So the NK um, regulatory or 56 bright are red, where the NK56, the CD56 dim NK effectors are blue. And we kind of looked at some typical markers. If you look in panel B, we looked at CD27 and CD11B, and we immediately noticed that the longstanding patients have a propensity to have a higher proportion of these more immature like NK cells. And you can see, we see both populations that are blue and red dots indicating they're both 56 brights and CD56 dim within that gate. And when we look at panel D and we look at 56 uh, expression with Granzyme B, you can see that the 56 dim, the blue cells are the ones that are mostly expressing the Granzyme B or the killing molecule. Um, though that the longstanding patients also have it, you can see they seem to be less robust um, in the staining. And the 56 brights really don't have um, Granzyme B expression, at least when you take them directly from a fresh blood sample without stimulating them ex vivo. But what we wanted to look at is kind of this idea of immature NK cells versus mature NK cells. So we wanted to use CKIT as kind of a distinguishing marker, which most people don't really delve into the differences using this marker, but we thought it could potentially be an important marker um, when we think about the activation status and the roles that these different subsets can be playing. So you can see in panel C that really it's the 56 bright cells that are expressing the CKIT. And again, we see this propensity of longstanding type 1 patients to have a higher proportion of this subset when we're gating on the total NK population within the peripheral blood sample. And again, we see a similar pattern when we look at CKIT versus Granzyme B to what we saw with CD56. So CKIT is a good marker for kind of looking more at these immature NK cells. So we actually, as Chris mentioned, we looked at a handful of patients just to see, could we see differences in these in the subsets of these NK cells in the peripheral blood of either control, longstanding type one patients. And we had a small number of at-risk patients, so autoantibody positive patients. And if you look at the left panel, you can see even between the control and the longstanding, when we looked at the NK effector, so the CD56 dim, CD16 positive cells within the total PBMC, we have a propensity to have less of these cells, which again means we have more regulatory cells or 56 brights. And when uh, we subdivided that between age and sex, that's what you see on the right side. You can see that the trend 
holds um, true for the long-standing patients, that you have this overall decrease um, in this relatively small number. Um, again, we would love for clinical trials to really delve into these subsets in more detail so we could kind of get a better understanding how therapies might be affecting this population. And although we had a small number of at-risk patients, you can even see at the at-risk patients have a propensity to have a lower level of NK effector population um, in, the, in the peripheral blood lymphocytes. So we found that interesting. Again, would love if this would be something examined in more detail in clinical trials. Um, did you wanna add anything here, Chris? Did I forget anything? Uh, no, yeah, I mean, just the the fact that the normal number in patients of NK is typically of the PBMCs is anywhere from, you know, zero obviously to 10%. So you're fairly, the longstanding are fairly low on the normal scale, as you can see. And then- Interesting, course, very interesting. And I love how you did this sort of layered approach to this, um, you know, set of uh, data. Yeah. So the next thing, of course, when we think about genetic risk for T1D, of course, we have to talk about HLA expression. Um, so we know HLA is, they're differentially expressed. We have different haplotypes, but here we just use flow, flow cytometry and just use kind of a pan HLA-DR antibody. So it's not looking at DQ8 versus DQ2. It's kind of just looking at overall um, between healthy controls and our longstanding patient samples that we have. And this trend was pretty um, pretty standard, what we saw with the small number of patients that we looked at, that when you look at the 56 brights, you can see that they tend to have more MHC, uh, the HLA, um, but it's low expressing to what you typically find when you look at the live CD45 and you see that bright peak which is probably B cells, macrophages, more traditional antigen presenting cells, where we didn't see much of this expression in healthy controls on the CD56 DIM or the NK effector cells, the killer cells. And interestingly, we saw this trend in the longstanding patients where the 56 brights actually have a higher proportion of cells that are expressing um, HLA DR molecules. So we found that super interesting. People don't normally think of NK cells as expressing HLA markers. And so since we know this is a risk allele for patients, it would be interesting again to look at these different subsets and look at what the HLA expression patterns are um, in control subjects and in T1D patients. Yeah, that is fascinating. Do, are there any other disease states where this is also seen HLA expression in NK cells like MS or any of the cousin diseases? Right. I've looked. So colitis has a lot of shared risk alleles um, and things, but we didn't, I haven't come across any papers where people have really been looking um, at, at HLA expression. And Chris and I actually kind of stumbled on this. We added it to the panel for another reason. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, whoa, look at how much HLA expression is on the 56 brights. Yeah. This And if you use the C kit as the marker instead of bright versus dim on the 56, it's even a little bit more cleaner, the data. Wow. I would love it if people would start also including C kit when they're looking um, at human peripheral blood uh, lymphocytes and looking at NK cells. Yeah. I mean, I think this speaks to the fact that like the fact that the, we can't find other papers, it speaks to the fact that the NKs are really understudied. I agree. You know? 
Yeah. Because people found the cell that was infiltrating the islets, right, or the beta cells, which is the CD8s, and destroying it. But nothing happens unless these cells start to cascade, the NKs, right, and, and other antigen-presenting cells. I mean, they're not, but like macrophages and things like that. So you have to have a triggering event. Right. People start looking at it. So we hope they start looking at it. Yeah. No, I think it's a real call to action. Yeah. That's why we wanted to show this data. This isn't actually published, but we actually would love if people would, you know, start including and thinking about NK cells. <laughs> I kind of get in the mouse model. So my lab studies, the NOD mouse model for spontaneous autoimmune diabetes. And so, as I mentioned, my lab is, a, is mostly a T-regulatory cell and using T-reg cells as a therapy for T1D and for inducing tolerance in transplantation settings. So there was a couple of papers that came out from Diane Mathis paper and also Rodunsky's lab. Oh, in like 2014, 15, I think these papers were. And so it really came out like, I this is my own panel kind of piecing their data together really showing that there's this interplay of the innate and adaptive immunity. And in panel A, when you have kind of just normal Tregs and you have an activated CD4 cell, it starts making IL-2 and Tregs with their high expression of CD25, they're really good at utilizing the IL-2 that's in the microenvironment. And then in turn, you get Treg cells to be suppressive and kind of turning off activated D cells. And you have NK cells there, and we know NK cells, especially the 56 brights, express the CD25. They express the trimeric IL-2 receptor, the high affinity IL-2 receptor expression. And Diane Mathis and Rudinsky also showed that this population expresses CD127, the IL-2 receptor alpha chain. But was also noted that when they depleted Tregs using either the diphtheria toxin model or other ways of, of depleting the, the Treg cells. They kind of got this unleashing of NK cells. And actually Diane Mathis's paper showed that you have a lot of the NK cells and these diabetic lesions when you deplete the Treg cells. And so it really was centered around the bioavailability of IL-2. So since the Treg cells are gone, there's all this IL-2 in the microenvironment and these NK cells start using it because the Treg cells who have this competitive advantage with high expression of CD25 are utilizing most of the IL-2. So now you get this unleashing of NK cells and they showed that you get a lot of interferon gamma coming from these cells types. So we think it's really important to be studying this interplay between the, for the CD8s, the Tregs and the NK cells. And so one of the things I noted, so my paper came out in 20, uh, 2020 in diabetes, where we were using anti-CD3 um, in combination with antigen-specific Treg cells. And one of the, this isn't published data, but one of the observations that also played into why we wanted to start paying more closer attention to NK cells was, if you look at the left panel, so you have untreated NOD mice, these are late pre-diabetics, so they're 16 to 20 weeks of age, so they don't have overt diabetes, but they're late pre-diabetic um, based on age. And so if we stimulate with PMA and itomycin for four hours, we see what the total interferon gamma is, and we use flow cytometry and looked at the CD45 positive cells that were penetrating into the eyelids. You can see that, you know, not, not, not too surprising that you have CD4, CD8 cells, the white and the, and the black pie 
Um, but the green is the NK cells. So you have NK cells contributing to interferon gamma production and TNF alpha just in the normal state, just in early, you know, these mice are likely to be turning to become diabetic. Um, but we use the anti-CD3 in the right panel. Again, we stimulate with PMA plus inomycin for our, it's not too much of a guess that we have more NK cells making more of the interferon gamma because we depleted some of the T cell um, population with the anti-CD3. But what struck us in this study is if we just took the cells from the pancreas um, from the anti-CD3 treated mice and didn't stimulate them ex vivo, we saw a lot of interferon gamma production, 32.4%, and TNFL plus 16.3%. And the majority of this cytokines, these pro-inflammatory cytokines, are actually coming from NK cells within the pancreatic islets themselves. Wow. And this idea of, you know, the anti-CD3 effects that you get early Treg depletion, they rebound quite quickly. But when you give the NK cells this footing to start using the bioavailable IL-2, it seems like you get this unleashing of pro-inflammatory NK cells. Um, and so we, so we really got even more interested in looking at the NK cells, especially using the NOD mouse model. So Allison, just to comment on that, I know that they've tried to treat like patients with chronic fatigue and other things with, um, high dose IL-2 that could potentially speak to this, that, that, that most of them got cytokine storm and some of the patients passed away because I guess if you're increasing that availability, even if there are Tregs present, maybe you would just start secreting the other inflammatory cytokines out of control, like you sort of show here, ex vivo, is that likely? I mean, it could be. Um, Anti-CD3 is known to cause cytokine production, um, but the one that they use in the patients does is the FAB, so it doesn't have the FC portion, so a lot of that is mitigated, but here we're looking at the NK cells, they don't have an they don't have the CD3 on the surface. In fact, these are gated on CD3 negative cells to make sure we weren't looking at NKT cells, for example. And these NK cells are just making copious amounts of these inflammatory cytokines with T cell depletion. Due to the IL-2 though, Curious, right? Yes, yeah. It would, now be available to the, them. it would be curious in the patients that um, from the trial, if they have frozen samples, mm. um, we could see a similar, a similar trend. Um, yeah but nobody looks at the NK cells in that anti-CD3 trial. So we don't know what's going on with that population. So one of the things is I haven't published this data yet. It's getting pretty close. One of the kits we need has been on back order since the beginning of summer. Hopefully it'll get released and we can get the paper out there. But we kind of looked at these kind of idea of looking, identifying two subsets similar to what we see in humans and seeing if we can find similar signatures. So if you look to the left, this it's comparing subset one and subset two. Sorry, I can't tell you what the subsets yet are, but hopefully by the end of the year, the paper will be out and I can fully tell you what the subsets are. It's a um, good teaser for people to be looking for that paper. Yes. So subset one looks a lot like the 56 brights. So look at all the class two markers, right? You have a whole bunch of um, where they're much more expressed in subset one versus subset two. You also have CCR7, you have IL-2 receptor alpha, TNF-alpha. So a lot of things that we are associating with the 56 brights um, for the human counterpart. And on the right, um, you can see the genes that are more expressed in subset two, which you have killing molecules, you have granzyme B, perforin, 
again, molecules that are associated with the 56, the, the killing molecules. Yeah. Um, so we find these two subsets in the mice very similar to what we see in humans. Um, and you can see the green are the highlighted ones that are associated from the GWAS studies. So you have eight or 10 um, GWAS genes out of 30 genes in subset one that are expressed and associated with T1B risk compared to the subset two, which only had one, the green highlighted the IL-18 wrap um, out of 35 genes. So subset one, we need to pay attention to and how is it contributing since it's associated with the GWAS studies and having a higher risk for T1D. So I just wanted to point that out before Chris wraps his, his stuff up with the folic acid, which I think is the next slide, Chris, right? No. Oh no, this is just doing, showing you that the same thing. 56 brights versus 56 dims. Okay. Let's get Do you want me to keep going or? Yeah, keep going. Okay. There you go. All righty. Um, so, yeah, this leads into another part of our investigation. So, we know looking at literature over the last 30 to 40 years how rapidly uh, all autoimmune conditions have increased, uh, particularly even type 1 diabetes. And much faster than epidemiological predictions, right? So we were very curious, like what could be causing this uh, potential defect in the immune system, again, linking it to NKs and other things. I mean, th there's a lot of hypotheses out there about, you know, endocrine disruptors and plastics, uh, environmental things like mold, all these different things that could do it. And you can almost find a, a correlation with anything, even things like, you know, dancing to the Macarena at a wedding or using using some playing too many video games, I mean, all these different uh -huh. things. But there was one thing that struck me in particular and another thing that I had been talking to my doctor about, which was uh, folic acid and, and the folic acid cycle in general, which is critical in multiple functions in all cells in our body. I mean, the production of energy, uh, the production of proteins and, and other structures, amino acids, and control of the immune system in the different molecules, the different purines that it, that it forms at the end of its cycle, these things, inosine and adenosine and things like that. So I started looking at folic acid. I mean, I know what it is used for and, and why we started supplementing all wheat products with it and all enriched flowers. And, and the idea was to reduce neural tube defects in babies, things like spina bifida and, and other complications. One thing that struck me is when I was walking around campus one day, I met this woman that had a tie to the DRI and she was a nurse on campus. And I, and, you know, she had seen that I was researching some of this stuff. And she told me the story about her child that had uh, been born with spina bifida, despite the fact that she had taken in copious amounts of folic acid during her pregnancy, much to what her doctor had asked and even more than, and the doctor actually got upset with her when the baby was born with spina bifida. The interesting thing to me was less than four months later, the baby developed type one diabetes. So, you know, now with things like 23andMe and there's all this research into things like the folate cycle, you can even get a report on it. And there are defects in the folate cycle that basically show improper metabolism. Uh, and in fact, it reaches out to as many as 50 percent of our of the world population. I mean, particularly people of European descent and things like that. So what we found is doing literature searches. We wrote this review and came up with another hypothesis where I was looking for anything regarding folic acid. There was a lot of papers out there, but there was one that struck me in particular where 
they had cultured uh, liver cells with folic acid and had seen that when they give the synthetic folic acid, they reduce the activity of the enzymes in this important pathway, particularly the very first enzyme, which is this one DHFR, mm. where everything else cascades down from. The folic acid will reduce the activity of that 5,000 fold in all the cells that they cultured. And if a person has one of the defects in, in the folic acid cycle, it can be up as high as 35,000 fold. So if you think of producing energy in your cell and you're trying to make this energy coin ATP and you're slowing down the production of all this, these enzymes down here, we feel that what you're basically doing is since the cells are craving energy and needing energy, you're driving this shift towards the easier of the two pathways, which is glycolysis. And now they're learning that glycolysis and oxidative phosphorylation, the two splits, one that produces more ATP and one that produces less, are very important in immune function and drive specific functions in immune function. And, uh, and Chris, I mean, this is yeah. really interesting. I mean, isn't it also true? I've talked to Amra Altidus at BC quite a bit. Mm -hmm. you know, he's really digs into the microbiome. And the microbiome is very important for intestinal folate production, right? Yep. So, Absolutely. So, you know, some of the some of the triggers, you know, have been is sort of mixed reviews whether or not antibiotics are involved or whatever, and maybe in some people they are or not. But that dis uh, any disruption in that, um, you know, intestinal uh, microbiome production of folic acid could also play into this type of model. Is that right? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, in fact, that one of the people I reached out to first, who is a person I consider a dear friend, is Mark Horwitz out of UBC. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was looking at some intestinal cells that are very similar, like they were called mate cells. And it was actually somebody else who was looking at them originally, and then he had reached out to them, and he had a high interest in them too. And they're very important in the production of uh, folate in the intestine. Yeah. So we're featuring him I mean, soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he's he's awesome. I mean, just a great guy and and such a brilliant immunologist. I mean, he's he was also involved in the viral stuff as well, looking at the Coxsackie B4 and the IF1H1 and, and things like that. So, I mean, essentially what we started doing was just looking at what happens when you introduce folic acid versus the naturally occurring folate. So now you you can see like in some obstetricians office they're offering women the choice they'll do a 23 and me they'll look at their folate genes and then they'll say well we think you should be taking not the synthetic folic acid but they offer methyl tetrahydrofolate which is, a, which is basically the naturally occurring the reason why they invented folic acid and supplemented wheat products with that is that it's much more stable than the regular folate right so it was just a way to spray it on your cereal and make sure it was still there six <laughs> months off the shelf no other reason so basically, there was not a lot of research done into what the potential long-term effects were. So now you see these papers coming out here, like the levels of unmetabolized folic acid in, in uh, patients from the NHANES study, which is like the national nutrition study that goes on year after year. Now, granted, early on, they didn't look at all the different byproducts of folic acid. So we've gone back trying to, you know, trying to mine some of that data, and there's a lot of pieces missing because only recently did they start looking at some of the more breakdown products of the folic acid. But without a doubt, the amount of unmetabolized folic acid in people's urine samples and blood samples has gone up five, tenfold in the last 20 years, 30 years since the fortification program began. And it was thought that that's a water soluble vitamin. It should be, you know, disposed of through your urine, but it's still remaining in the blood. And those levels they're finding are actually toxic. 
they're associated with decreased NK cell activity, believe it or not. And I think that's because they're producing adenosine at the end instead of inosine like they should. Inosine is a purine that drives NK function in the effector pathway. Adenosine, as we know, is sort of immunosuppressive. When you take things like methotrexate, right, it, it increases adenosine production and suppresses you. So that basically taking folic acid in some ways in the quantities that we take, if you're eating processed foods, is, is likened to taking adenosine. And the other thing that was interesting to me too is hearing so many people that are developing type two and things like that, like how they try to get off of processed foods, right? How it's so hard, how it's like an addiction. And if you're if every cell in your body is craving for ATP because you're running it through the wrong pathway because you have that defect or you can't produce energy fast enough, it makes sense to me. It also increases improper lipid storage, right? So you can't do anything with all this glucose. You're not so you're putting it away as instead of breaking it down into ATP. I so love how you're I love how you're talking about this from a physiological standpoint and really trying to incorporate all the different pieces, not just sort of like your um your the, you know the a, a, a one you know one target approach. It's really really fascinating. I appreciate that. I mean yeah, I mean a lot of it is hypothetical, right? But I want people to think about it. Yes. Cuz I know there's people out there that are, I trust me, I couldn't break down any part of this pathway and understand it. I'm not that much of a biochemist, but uh, people that can start looking at it and and figure it out because we need to fix these problems that keep getting worse. Yeah, show the next graph. It was yeah, so here was the yeah. thing that struck me, like when I was, and you know, it's funny because I was talking to one of the physicians here and he's like, yeah, you could, like I said, you could do that with video games or anything. I said, yeah, but video games don't directly affect the energy <laughs> pathway the way folic acid does. But this is just some data showing the trend of uh, diabetes in the country, both type one and type two. But starting in, you know, and then at the point where folic acid fortification began, you see this tremendous uptick that wasn't expected. And at the same time, we have the levels of unmetabolized folic acid that are shown in the little green bars that went from 5.8 up to 13.8 and higher. And now they're well above 20 to 25, I believe, is what people are saying. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's and it's in every product. It's hard to find flour without folic acid. I mean, that was something I was trying to do was reduce my intake of it, for example. And even now they're putting it in things like rice and salad dressings and things where you wouldn't expect to see it. Mm. And I, I can't imagine that. And in this country, we really didn't have a problem with deficiencies in folic acid. That's more in developing countries. Right. But now even in developing countries where they didn't see incidences of, di of type one diabetes, that's all increasing, too, in other places. Because this is really fascinating. Um, and I'm, I'm going to share it with a couple of people directly, just yeah, as scientists, because I think I've been talking about them sort of around and around different parts of this. And I think it'll be really in really interesting to them. One thing I did want to just totally share with you guys in anecdotally yeah is, you know, I formed this group called the Sugar Mamas. They had like 40, you know, moms in there that had kids with type one. One thing we all, we talked a lot about, and again, anecdotal, um, that a lot of the kids, almost the majority had recalcitrant warts, which is associated with natural killer cell deficiency. Mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting, right? That, that that was also just kind of something that was just talked about. Um, and, and yeah. perhaps, right, that, that that was sort of like lurking in the background. Who knows, you know, what prompted this NK deficiency, but one pathway certainly could be this dietary pathway. Yeah, and I mean, warts are often of a viral origin too, origin. right? Like, I mean, that's another thing that we forget, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, who knows how it starts? I can't, 
I hear a lot of parents anecdotally talk about how their kid had a very severe infection of one sort or another, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it be a bacterial, viral, uh, you know, like a very difficult infection. And if you think in terms of when I got the vaccine, I mean, that wasn't what prompted me to get diabetes, but it's the same sort of thing, right? Like if you, if you get an infection, your, your immune system is concentrated on that. If you get a vaccine, your immune system is concentrated on that. Right. It gives an opportunity for all this stuff to pop up. So now I feel like I'm playing a chronic game of whack-a-mole, trying to knock <laughs> one down the other one pops up, right? So once you get that balance out of whack, these things can happen. So that's the the sad thing to me. So here's a little bit of data that that we uh, produced in, you know, just studying this stuff. We took um, just the synthetic folic acid and uh, we actually used that in an insulin stimulated glucose uptake of muscle cells, which are the main users of glucose if you're, and we used 2-deoxyglucose, which allows you to study it because it's, it's well labeled and you can measure, <clears throat> uh, measure an output. And so essentially what we saw is that when uh, given insulin, the higher the dose of folic acid, the the lower the difference between stimulated and uh, basal uptake. So essentially, like when you have insulin on board, they're just not consuming the glucose because there's some sort of disruption. And it's probably because it's just shuttling towards glycolysis and they're not taken in. So we see that your insulin sensitivity is essentially suppressed by this. At the same time, um, we did uh, another thing with the insulin tolerance test and looked at the blood glucose drop in animals that were fed just to control folate versus the folic acid. And we see again that in the folic acid, there was a trend for the glucose to go down less per minute with the same dose of insulin than in the control group. So they're not using it efficiently. It's not consuming the glucose. And these were on a high dose of folic. I think it was the 40 micromolar dose. So, so the folic acid really could be contributing a big contributor for those with type two as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a metabolic yeah. cycle that affects everybody, right? Like, right. so you can't, every cell utilizes that cycle to produce energy, to, you know, to control immune response in some ways, as we know now, Allison, from the stuff you guys have been looking at with uh, different metabolic effects on immune function and cytokine production and things like that, whether it be pro-inflammatory or sort of regulatory. Um, yeah, I think it's a critical cycle. And that's why this one struck me more than like playing video games or other things like that. <laughs> so I, in my lab, I just like to thank people that have been instrumental uh, during the time besides Allison and everybody in her group, but like LeBaron, Augustini, uh, one of my graduate students, Graham Gardner, a postdoc, Paula, who was an undergrad, Jessica, who also worked in uh, Allison's lab as well as an undergrad. And then one of my other postdocs, uh, Mohamed Hossein Tutuji. And then finally, my colleague Armando Mendez, who is the biochemist that helped me with a lot of the uh, you know, glucose uptake studies and insulin tolerance tests and things like that. And he's an endocr endocrinologist, uh, biochemist. And then Allison, I defer to you. Well, I mean... I, it was really Chris, like not coming down from the fifth floor to the second floor in the DRI. And it's like, I have this crazy idea. What do you think? And it's, you know, just through conversations with Chris, I'm like, um, Chris has a really good, he undersells himself. Chris has the great ability to think outside the box and put the puzzle together. So um, if you ever have an opportunity or think you have a crazy idea, um, contact Chris Fraker and bounce that idea. He's very good at putting the pieces together. Um, 
So yeah, and really this paper that I've been working on for the last two plus years now um, really stemmed from initial conversations with Chris and trying to understand what NK cells, and of course I'm interested how they impact Tregs and how they may negatively impact Treg-based therapies if we get these infl- inflammatory NK cells because we know natural Tregs you know, don't like those environments. Um, and yeah, so I would, yeah, to- I, I would, I would also just offer that. I just love the fact that the DRI Miami really fosters this kind of out of the box thinking and this collaborative environment and is very supportive of, of, you know, really trying to push the knowledge base forward through both collaboration and innovative ideas. Um, it's, it's so important and it's, it's kind of rare these days to get that kind of a, an environment. A lot of times people are so preoccupied on the next, uh, the next grant and whatever that they, they kind of stay in their lane very, very much. So I think this is a very organic and, um, exciting environment at the DRI. Yeah. I mean, and speaking to that, we did try to get funding, you know, through external sources, but I mean, at least I tried a couple of times and Allison is now getting some because she's, her work obviously isn't much. I did it more on um, some of those innovative things like for young investigators and it was hard, but the DRI foundation always was able to keep us going and give support to this because they, you know, they saw uh, promise and interest in it. And now I think Allison, you know, she'll, have funding to do some of that work looking at NKs in the future too. And so I'm excited about it. And, you know, we've talked to colleagues at places like UF too, and, and tried to get some of them excited. And I have a colleague at University of Alabama, Birmingham and Mark in British Columbia. So, you know, as I keep blabbing through Zoom or whatever, I'm, I'm just pushing, because for me, it's personal, right? I'm like, come on, start looking at that. And that's what I did to Allison too. So when she says I came down with a crazy idea, she was like, Chris was crazy and came down and bugged me and wanted me to start working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want it cured, you know, that's the motivation. Yeah. Well, we know what people like Steve Jobs says about crazy ideas that they often lead to, to breakthroughs. So I think that, yeah, I, um, I think there's nothing, no, there's nothing uh, crazy about this, these types of ideas that you're talking about. They're, they're really innovative and they're very interesting. Um, yeah, I think in clinical trials, people just kind of look, think of NK cells. Like I said, people just think of the killers, the NK effector cells, but it's really the NK regs, the 56 brights that are making all the different cytokines. They can actually make infl- uh, inhibitory cytokines, IOT, mm-hmm. you know, so they play a big role in the adaptive response and what kind of response you get. Yeah. Um, just kind of blanketly look at this as like a big like one big population, but it's actually very heterogeneous. And we know NK cells belong to the innate lymphoid cell group one, right? So you also have the traditional ILC1s that are often ignored and make a lot of interfering gamma. And we look at that subset too, or see some really interesting things. So, you know, I'm at the point where I've had some funding for it. And, you know, like I said, a lot of the our foundation has continued to when we haven't been able to get funding and um because they believe in our ideas and you know we feel passionate about it and we need to get the word out so like i said i'm a t-reg person but you know got into innate cells and nk cells um well it's great to do to have this cross collaboration i think in the interest of time we may stop here but um i i'd ask you anyone in the audience that has a question to reach out directly to either dr allison bayer or dr chris breaker 
and um, ask them via email just because I'm sure they have a busy day to get back to. And we did go over quite a bit, but it was so fascinating. And I so appreciate your time.